Buzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the PAUSE platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Sally Thompson-Iritani, who is a clinical associate professor and assistant vice provost at the University of Washington. Sally is also a certified compassion fatigue and human-animal bond practitioner. Welcome, Sally. Thank you. I really am happy to be here and I really appreciate the invitation, Sabrina. Thank you so much. Absolutely. The pleasure is all my very much looking forward to our conversation. And we often like to start the podcast with, say, like an early story of you connecting with an animal or perhaps the environment, something that is dear to your heart. And perhaps you could start with that. Oh, yes, I would be happy to. And I think, you know, um, to be honest with you, probably my earliest connection with animals, I would tell you, is all about cats because cats are the kind of like animal that I'm most fond with and I have kind of that connection with. I, I love everything about cats and I think that um, I've loved everything about cats since the day I was born. And growing up, you know, um, that was something I think sometimes too, like I found a lot of comfort in my interactions with cats. And I appreciated so much the way their independence and their, um, you know, kind of attitude, I guess. It just so impressed me. So as a kid, that was some of my early experience was really with um, people who had, I wasn't allowed to have cats because we were in a little tiny apartment. Um, so for some of my earliest memories. So I would go to my friend's house where they had cats and we would try to sneak the cats in whenever we could because there were always, you know, at that period of time, there were more cats kind of just roaming neighborhoods. Um, but eventually, you know, my mom would find out and we'd have to put the cat back out. But that's kind of, I would say, some of my earliest memories are really connecting with cats and um, having that interaction and appreciation of their personalities and um, how, how they could kind of, how we could connect with each other and provide comfort. That was a big thing for me was they provided me a lot of comfort. Yeah, that's really wonderful. And already, you know, your mom clearly, you know, was thinking about the animals already, like what sort of quality of life do the animals have, right? And, and deciding that probably it's not the best idea in a smaller apartment. And you being really already so connected to, of course, the animals, the cats that you love so much, all about cats, I love that. And, uh, and also your, you know, thinking around and feeling around, you know, their personality and who they are and caring for them and connecting with them. And, um, you know, you are a human animal bond practitioner. We're going to hear a lot more about that. But that's just really lovely to hear all those details. And perhaps you could share, you know, how or why you came to study animal care and welfare or how did you get into the profession that you are in? Yeah, this started very early also. Um, as I mentioned, you know, I, I really connected with animals from an early age. And 
Also in the connection with animals, I think you're right. I think that particularly my mom really nurtured that understanding and providing for the animal, not just for, it's not just for our needs, but making sure that we're also meeting the needs of the animals and we can have, you know, a, a reciprocal, respectful relationship. So that's a lot of where this started for me and me um, wanting to care for the animals and make sure that they were cared for in a way that met their needs. So I think that that's a big thing that came to me. And early on, I, um, you know, one, there's a few experiences in my life that really impacted this. Uh, one was when I was in elementary school and I, I had to admit, I don't remember my exact age, but I was maybe eight to 10 years old. And um, I had a good friend whose um, father worked at the university and um, her father would, was doing research with mice. And he would bring the cages of mice home on the weekends because he didn't want to have to go into the lab to take care of them. This was a long time ago, and that's the way we did things then. So we would get to take care of these mice. They were actually just living on their, they would, he would have them in their little shoebox cages on the kitchen counter. And we would get to take care of them over the weekend, and we would take care of them, and we actually would would hold them and we would walk around with them in our pockets, and they were just the sweetest things. But it also endeared to me like how important it was that they were cared for, um, him bringing them home on the weekend, right, to care for them and making sure that they got what they needed and then allowing us to help them, him take, you know, to provide that for them was really important. So that was one of the first things, but it also made me realize that there, you know, there may be situations where animals are used in research and it may be a really important situation. So I'm starting to try to understand that concept because I also felt like, you know, science and understanding how we can um, you know, treat diseases was really important. So that's when I started to make some of those connections. As I got a little bit older, I had another experience um, that impacted me in this way, where I actually remember seeing, I thought it was like a weekend newspaper or a magazine where they had shown uh, actually a non-human primate. And they were showing non-human primates, which were used in neuroscience studies, and talking about some of these significant breakthroughs that were made, um, understanding uh, our brain, with using these non-human primates and, and how helpful this was for, for society and for, for people and for animals. And in reading that and understanding how important the science was, one thing that impacted me and I really wanted to know about was who's taking care of the animals? How is that done? What does that look like? And I remember actually asking my mom, you know, like, what do you think this is like? Who cares for these animals? Who does that? And um, she said, you know, she didn't know. She said, but maybe I should do something like that. Maybe I should be one of the people that takes care of those animals. And I thought, oh, maybe she's right. And um, so that's kind of, I think, one of my, you know, I know I was in junior high at the time where I started thinking about, you know, in my desire to want to take care of animals, maybe this was going to be the place where I could do it, where, you know, understanding science and how important it may be to use animal models in certain situations, that maybe there was going to be an opportunity for me to be able to provide for the care and well-being of the animals that were going to be used to support um, important scientific endeavors. Absolutely. And I think this is a really important point. And, you know, this podcast is there to discuss all kinds of topics and also, you know, animals in research, animals on farms, animals in zoos and aquariums, animals in the wild. And, you know, asking the question, who is taking care of these animals? And, you know, regardless of whether or not we are in support of animal 
you know, being used in science. There's, of course, a lot to talk about that. And, and that's also your area of expertise. But the question, the core question of who is caring for the animals? You know, who's doing that? How are they doing that? And perhaps I can be that person to then, you know, do something for the animals that they're there. And that's such an important, such an important role and such an important topic to discuss because regardless of what our future aspirations are, our, our ideals are, the reality is there's animals in all kinds of facilities and organizations, whether they are in farms or research facilities. And those animals, they care about what happens to them in this moment. So taking care of those animals is really, really important. So thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. And perhaps you can share a little bit more on, you know, what you studied or perhaps your PhD and how you furthered your career in this. Sure. Yeah. And it's, it's um, been a little circuitous uh, in some ways at the same time, knowing that I wanted to be in this position of caring for the animals that were used to support the science. And, and like you say, it's, it's, there's some controversy. Of course there is, and there should be. You know, I mean, I think that that we, you know, we all want to be thinking about this at every, uh, you know, every juncture. Is this necessary? Should we be doing this? What's how important is this information? So that's something that I was looking at when I was um, working on my PhD, where I was looking at environmental interactions and how they were affecting primarily what I was looking at was fetal development development. And my PhD was focused on um, developmental exposure to methylmercury. Um, methylmercury is an environmental contaminant that can cause significant um, fetal malformations um, and developmental malformations. So what I did in my PhD was looking at some of the um, mechanisms, the biological mechanisms behind this and showing that, you know, a lot of this could be attributed to some of the oxidative stress that was induced during that fetal development. And I used the mouse as an animal model for that and um, was able to discover some really important things about how methylmercury exposure was impacting that. So that's, that's where uh, my PhD, I thought at the time I really, and I still do feel like looking at you know, our environment and figuring out how it's impacting our well-being and health of people and animals is really important. I think you know, whenever possible, we wanna use um, non-animal you know, uh, scientific models to evaluate that, but there are some things particularly fetal development that are really important and we have to study them in situ during the actual developmental cycle in an animal. And that's where that data became really important. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's how I started on that. But after that, I actually ended up going into um, a biotech company and not working so much on the environmental exposure, but more on the therapeutic development side of things. Thanks so much. Can you talk to us a little bit about you know, in what ways, because of course it's different depending whether like you're based in the United States, um, I'm based here in Spain, there's different uh, legislation, directives, there's different laws. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, for people who are listening, who are not familiar about animals used in science, who are serving, um, how does that work and in what sorts of measures are in place to to care for animals, to protect animals, to uh, consider the animals? That is such a good question. And there is a lot, you know, there, there globally, there are some differences, but there are also, I would emphasize there are a lot of similarities because I think that everybody recognizes that it's really important that we take care of the animals. Trying to figure out what is the best thing for the animals is, is one of our challenges because 
you know, different environments and everything um, can have different impacts on our studies. So some of that we're trying to really understand. And there um, are a lot of what we would term as regulations, at least in the United States, we call them regulations, laws, and everything that oversee how we take care of animals that support um, biomedical research primarily. And there are several different organizations that oversee that in the United States and in Europe, there are different organizations that see that. In Australia, there's different ones, in China and Japan. And, but there are some that are global, like the ALAC International is a global organization that oversees um, the care and use of laboratory animals. And that's a really important thing because what it tries to do is make give us some standardized things that we can look at in caring for the animals because we have evolved into using animal models and some things, you know, over time, as we gain new information about how to care for the animals, how to provide for their environment, we are gonna change what we do. I think one of the perfect examples that I think about is, is the mice, like I talked about the mice that I had the early exposure to, they were in a, what we call a shoebox cage because it's about the size of a shoebox and they would put five mice in a cage and, and you know, they would provide them food and water, but we didn't think about all the other needs of the mice. And over time, we're thinking, we're learning about, you know, if you were to watch a mouse in the wild, what would it need? And, and some of its basic needs are, are food and water, obviously in a clean cage. And actually in, in reality, they don't necessarily prefer a clean cage because they like their own scent. They like the smell of things that they've already marked. So, you know, we have to think about that. And then we also have to think about like for mice, they want nesting materials and they don't want just one type of nesting material. In their ideal environment, they want five to seven types of nesting material that they can all weave together and you can watch them do it. They'll build the nest out of all these things. And then, you know, like we talked about, giving them a clean cage, when we change their cage and we give them a whole new, we take that nest away that they just took so many so much time building, that can be stressful. So we really have to think through these things and how we're making sure that the animals can be comfortable while they're being used in research. And I know that that that's, you know, those are some of the things that we're trying to think about. It's, it's really providing for them as natural an environment as possible while we're supporting the research. Yes, absolutely. And this, you know, could be very difficult also for people to hear. And of course, you know, at the start of this podcast, there will be a notification. Some people might not want to listen, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, we all have to decide, like you said, you asked that question, right? Who's caring for the animals? I want to do that. We all do different things in life. And some things, you know, you don't want to do or you don't want to hear or listen to. And that's completely fine. Uh, but the, the fact remains, the animals are in our care. So how do we do the best job we can while they are there? Because it matters to them, right? And well-being is about the now. And it's very much about, you know, for the animals to have choices. Or like you say, the research has shown us that, you know, it's a good idea to not clean out the cages completely, but keep some of the bedding or some of the housing, um, depending, of course, on the research project and so on. But that's the same also we do in zoos, right? We don't necessarily clean out everything. We keep parts of the animals bedding, nesting material and hides so that, you know, there's familiarity there. And the research on how do we interact with the animals? And we're gonna hear a lot more about human-animal human interactions and human-animal bonds. You know, a lot of the care staff, um, you know, working with research animals as well as zoo animals, they develop 
sorts of attachments and bonds and friendships and, and have all kinds of interactions and also how we handle those animals. So as you mentioned, it's so important to understand the effects of what we do and really make the animals as comfortable uh, as possible. And, and that is just so important. And we all have a role to play and I'm so glad that you're playing this role that you're showing up for the animals and making um, the animals that are in research as comfortable as possible. And perhaps, you know, you could share with us a little bit on your working history and then, you know, we can maybe hear where you work now. And I know there are some changes. Uh, we're recording this uh, in a different month than, than the podcast is coming out. So there's some changes in your role coming in the next coming months. But perhaps you can share with us a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. So as I mentioned, after I completed my graduate work, I went and I worked out in the biotechnology pharmaceutical field, really looking at um, therapeutic developments and, and figuring out, you know, what role animal models play in supporting those. So I did some work at some gene therapy companies that were treating cystic fibrosis and um, rheumatoid arthritis and some different companies that had different products for asthma or for cancer. And that was kind of my role there was both as a veterinarian and as a scientist. So I, I was really doing both roles and really connecting like how important, you know, when you see the populations of people who are impacted by some of those very devastating diseases and then utilizing the animal model to try to get answers to the questions on how we could potentially um, provide for them. So that, that was my kind of working history for quite a long time in the Seattle area, working in biotech, pharma for about 18 years. And um, I learned so much. And I, I, I mean, there was, there's some really important discoveries that are coming out of those and some pretty spectacular therapies. Really important to recognize that some of those therapies are really out there changing lives. So I think it's important to recognize our, you know, strides that we've made in treating cancer um, and, uh, you know, and other diseases. Um, people with cystic fibrosis used to die very young. Now they're living into the 30s, 40s. I mean, that's pretty spectacular. So I think that it's really important, you know, that we recognize some of those major strides that we have made. Um, and then uh, after finishing up that, there was a role at the University of Washington that opened up in the, uh, what's called the Office of Animal Welfare. And the Office of Animal Welfare oversees the, the compliance and care for the animals here at the University of Washington, primarily by association with working with the um, Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee and the attending veterinarian intending veterinarian and kind of supporting their role to make sure that, you know, all of our animal care program is, is up to standard. So um, that's when I moved into that role of overseeing that Office of Animal Welfare, which was about eight years ago, I guess. Um, and uh, I then working in that role, I ended up um, over after a couple of years when there was some transition within the primate center, I was asked to come over and work in the primate center overseeing and working with the non-human primates. Now, as I'd mentioned to you previously, even from a young age of understanding the use of non-human primates in research, it's tough. So, you know, I don't want anybody to think that I take it callously or anything like that, because that is definitely not it. I see their role as being so important. I understand, you know, the importance of, of looking for alternatives whenever possible, but I also understand the important role that the non-human primates play. So, when I was um, looking at this position in the Primate Center, it was really important for me to, to go back and reconnect with what had been so important with me from early on and how what are we doing to make sure that we can do whatever we can, as you said, to provide them as comfortable an environment as possible. 
And so that's why I then take on this role over in the primate center and um, working with the people that work with take care of these animals has been probably one of, I mean, I, I can't tell you how important all these people are. They are so invested in what they do every single day coming in, interacting with these animals and taking care of them. It is one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen. If you wanna talk about bonding, if the bonding is there and they want to also ensure that all the animals are here in our care, they receive the best care possible. Um, now, regarding my transition into a new role, I will be transitioning into a new role in the middle of October as the assistant vice provost overseeing our kind of animal care outreach and, tra and um, transparency and three hours program here at the University of Washington. So I'll have a role overseeing our larger animal care and use program, which will include the primate center and then office of animal welfare where I previously worked and some care and support for the comparative medicine department, which takes care of all the other species um, that the University of Washington has uh, and that cares for. So that's gonna be my new role coming up. I'm looking really forward to it because there is an outreach component um, where again, working uh, to make sure that there's a good understanding of why and when animals are used in research. There's also a big three R's component to my new job of looking at how reduction, refinement and replacement fit into our research programs. Yes, and you know, I can share a personal story because I have also worked with research animals in various um, research facilities in universities, working, you know, in animal care and welfare, not directly with the animals, because unfortunately I'm allergic to all animals, which is kind of not handy when you're doing the job I do, but I did spend a lot of time with the people. And so I completely, it resonates completely for me having seen the people invested in caring for the animals. And also, you know, when I get the question, why do you work with research facilities or with um, people who are caring for research animals? And my answer is, I have asthma, I have allergies. And, you know, I would not be alive today. I've had really serious, you know, asthma attacks when I was younger. And if it was not for the medication and the care in the hospital, and today I'm still sometimes having to take medication, I wouldn't be alive. And so, you know, to me, it is, you know, I, I have to acknowledge and be very grateful for all the animals that, you know, have served in research that allowed me to live the life that I do. And so I'm, I, I'm really grateful that I can serve research animals and help them and, and, and work together with the people who do all that amazing work. Thank you for sharing that story. I think that's really important. I'm similarly have really benefited a lot, both myself and my family and my pets have benefited a lot. So I do feel that same kind of, you know, it, it, uh, gratitude and um, importance of that. Yes, and I, I think it's also a really important point that you made now and you made it earlier that, you know, a lot of this work also benefits other animals and uh, a lot of work in, in veterinary science, but also in, in other sorts of research benefit not just the human animal, but also other animals. And so, and that is often also an aspect that is not necessarily acknowledged or known. So perhaps you can talk a little bit to that. Yeah, it's um, definitely the, you know, as we talked about our pets, you know, the zoo animals, the um, agricultural animals, we need to be continually doing research and understanding how we can improve things to take care of 
them, how we can, you know, if you just think about surgeries, right? Surgeries are, were developed um, using animal models. Um, all the therapies that we're relying on now, vaccines, everything was developed using animal models. And I vaccinate my pets. I They have had surgery. They have had insulin. I had a diabetic cat. They've had all of those things that really was dependent on the use of animal models for their development. Yes. And, you know, you and I are recording this podcast. It's still COVID times. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, how do people, how have they continued the care uh, during all this time? Oh, my gosh. It has been, um, you know, it, it has been tough. It has been tough on everybody in our whole society, I know. But I particularly really think about our animal caregivers because they've shown up. They've shown up every day for work to take care of the animals. And they've shown up, you know, in times when it was really scary to even leave your house, right? We were told, like, don't go out, don't go to the grocery store, don't touch anything, don't breathe anything, don't do anything because you might get COVID and die. Um, so they showed up, though. And, and the, that just, like I say, it inspired and impressed me beyond belief. Um, and in addition, you know, we're worried about the animals. We don't know. If COVID, like, is it if so far there hasn't been a natural? I think there was one suspected natural transmission in a lab from a person to uh, one a monkey. I can't, I, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember which species it was, but we, we were scared at the beginning. Like, we didn't know is this going to be transmissible to, to the, the animals, right? Whether it be a non human primate, whether it be a mouse, a rat, a ferret, anything like that, would there be any risks? So, in when taking care of non-hero primates, we already have very, very strict personal protective equipment that we wear whenever we interact with the animals. So that should decrease our risk of transmission. Uh, working with animal, other animals, we haven't always had all of those precautions. So we had to institute a lot more of those. In addition, a big strain on the people is that they can go in and work with the animals. Everyone has their PPE. And then traditionally when they come when they used to come out from working with the animals, they would have a break and they would get to socialize with their friends. They would get to eat lunch together. They would share lunches together. And guess what? During COVID, they couldn't do any of that. They couldn't sit together. They couldn't take breaks together. Nothing. They could not be have interactions. So that's been really stressful on people because that was their culture. And that was something that, that they really enjoyed was being able to share that time with each other. And I think that has been a huge strain. In addition, you know, some of them have to take public transportation. Public transportation was really scary during COVID. So trying to figure out how do we decrease that risk of transmission as much as possible, keep people safe, but also take care of these animals. And the other thing so important is that, of course, we had to do studies supporting COVID, understanding what it is, how we could develop vaccines and other therapies for it. But there's other diseases that can take a break, right? They're not taking a COVID break. These other diseases that equally have such a big important impact in, in our society. And, and we still have to do studies to support those diseases also. So I think that there are so many components that are making it really complicated as we um, all know it's not over yet. Uh, we don't know what's coming down the pike. So we have to really stay diligent. We have to continue our diligence to make sure that we're doing everything that we can to um, provide this top-notch care for these animals, make sure to keep everyone safe and, um, and make sure that we're also really accommodating for people's mental health because we had to even change the term from social distancing to physical distancing. Because if you say social distancing, it makes it seem like people can't socialize together. So we 
changed the term physical distancing and said, you know, if you want to eat lunch via Zoom, everybody join together and eat lunch via Zoom um, so that you could maintain that social contact, but still respecting the physical distancing. Excellent example. I'm really, really looking forward to hearing more about mental health. And that's also how you and I met at the Primate um, Society conference in Nairobi. And, uh, and you presented on, on, um, on human well-being. And, uh, and that's how we got talking and uh, collaborating uh, some years ago. So that's really exciting. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned something so important, how, you know, the care continues. And sometimes we focus on what, you know, uh, is different between us or what separates us. But there are so many, you know, we look at animal care fields, you know, whether it's zoos or sanctuaries or research facilities or farms, you know, everybody during COVID was, you know, continuing to care. And so that really unites us that really, you know, that's our common ground. We all want the animals to be well. We all want to care for them the best way possible. We all develop bonds, friendships and interactions with our animals in one way or another. So it's really, to me, so important to look at, you know, in what ways are our jobs similar and are we, can we learn from each other? Can we support each other? And I love that distinction that you just made. Uh, of the physical and the social distancing and, and really looking at, uh, at the mental well-being of the people who care for animals in general and also in, in research facilities. And perhaps could you talk a little bit more to the importance of the role of air animal caregivers? Oh, yes. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think, you know, our animal caregivers, they have such an important role because they have the everyday interaction. Everyday interactions with the animals are what makes the difference, right? It's not if, if somebody goes in, you know, every once in a while, that, that, that's great. And that can be really helpful, but it's the everyday interactions that make all the difference in the world for the animals. And that's where, you know, we have a saying here, um, you know, every day, every interaction, make it positive because we have that power. And these are animals that are, you know, they're in a different environment than they would be in in the wild. Um, and so we have that responsibility to make sure that our interactions with them are positive. And that's kind of our policy. We do know that they're going, you know, used in a research experiment and experimentally there may be an adverse interaction, but our daily interactions of caring for the animals, we can make those positive. And that's within our power. And that's something that we can commit to. And that's something our animal caregivers are very committed to. But we do have to think about what kind of impact it can have on them because they also get attached just like the rest of us. You know, They get attached to the animals. They are very attached to taking care of the animals. If there's an adverse event, they can be very devastated by it. So we have to figure out you know, how do we not just care for the animals? How do we care for the people who are caring for the animals? Because if we care for the people who are caring for the animals, it's going to result in better care for the animals. We know that, right? People who are in a better space, both you know, mentally, physically, everything like that, are going to better be able to take care of the animals. Absolutely. And the animal caregivers are so invested. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. There's a lot of research showing that. And we, of course, also know that the lens that you're you know, viewing the world through, the, depending on what you experience. So that all those things are really important to consider. And before we dive deeper into, you know, the human animal connection, and of course, 
mental well-being. Could you talk a little bit about the work of the Northwest Association for Biomedical Research? Oh, sure. Yeah. So the Northwest Association for Biomedical Research is an organization that is um, committed to being, you know, supporting the biomedical research community in all aspects and helping uh, the general, you know, helping everyone understand where biomedical research is so important. So this is really centered around all of these concepts of, you know, um, there's some really good and important training on human clinical trials. There's important training on animal care and how do we, you know, proper animal care and animal care committee training. And then also on our biosafety, how do we, you know, taking care of people with biosafety and making sure that things are safe and that we're not having exposures in labs that, you know, are doing different types of studies. So that's some of the focus of the Northwest Association for Biomedical Research is really that outreach and transparency around biomedical research and making, helping people to understand, like, if you're looking at going on a clinical trial, how do you understand what that looks like? How do you know that it's being done responsibly? How, there's all of those things. And so that's some of the commitment of, and we call it NWABR, is to try to open those doors and make things more interpretable and understanding to everybody. Thank you. Yes, and you already mentioned, you know, transparency and the three R's. And you and I know there's there's actually a few more R's, but then and they're written about in different sorts of publications. Um, you know, about obviously, you know, remembrance, you know, or maybe the rehabilitation of the animals back into people's homes. So there's lots of different ways that we can be thinking about are how do we care for the animals? Can we reduce the number of animals? Can we refine how we do things we do? And, um, and of course, then also thinking about the, the, the mental well-being or the connection, the bond, the human-animal interactions, and in what ways uh, can we create you know, communication or rituals around the care of the animals? And perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about your work, either, you know, related, it's all obviously interrelated, but, you know, when it comes to human-animal interactions, so you're certified human-animal bond practitioner, what does that mean? What, what does that, um, you know, what sort of background do you get when you get certified in that? Yeah, definitely. And I'm going to digress for one minute because I just have to tell you, like, I mentioned to you, like, I've been a cat person since day one, and I really have, but um, I did have an amazing experience in the, in the 90s where I actually was able to adopt an, a dog who was a research dog, and, um, and that's, um, and he won me over, I have to say, into the dog world, so I, I've continued to have dogs ever since, so um, even though, you know, I would say originally I was, I was a cat person, like, having that experience and getting to know that dog, he converted me to, to loving dogs um, also, which I did, at, at the, you know, always, but it just like, I just wanted to mention that I think it, that you mentioned about the rehoming of the animals um, whenever possible. And I think there's just so much, it's so important that we try to do that whenever possible and provide them that, um, you know, that forever home at the end. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, so regarding the human-animal interactions, I think that this is something that has so many different aspects to it. And if you look back through history, human-animal interactions have evolved from, you know, in so many different places, you know, from the animals being worshipped to them being looked at as, you know, just only like vermin control and then, you know, actually being disease 
you know, possibly leading to disease. And even, you know, when you look at, um, you know, a lot of what we do looking at non-hero primates, we have a global programs, the, the group that, that looks at interactions, human-animal interactions in um, other countries, in the native environments, and the human-animal interactions of people with non-hero primates, like if you look at some of the Thailand temples and the, the monkeys that will steal things from people, and all sorts of things like that. So human-animal interactions go beyond just the human-pet bond. Human-animal interactions can take on so many different types of dynamics. And I think it's really important that we continue to recognize all of those different dynamics because I think what we commonly do is we go to our own experiences. And my experiences are having pets in a home. Another person's experience is, you know, growing up on a farm and raising animals for food. Another person's experience, you know, maybe living, you know, like like we just, you know, like I was just saying, in, in some town in Africa where, you know, certain animals may look be looked at as pests because they're, you know, and here, you know, the rabbits are eating through your garden. And so they're looked at as pests. And so there's all sorts of different human animal interactions that need to be thought about. And I think that some are really incredibly positive and can be very nurturing. Others can be potentially challenging, right? And even if you look at people with pets, if somebody's very immunocompromised, it may not, they, they have to be really careful about what pet they choose and how we, they can have a, a relationship with a pet that will keep them safe and keep the animals safe. So there's things that have to, you know, like in my mind, I always think that it's totally, you know, going to be positive to these human animal interactions, but we have to think about the bigger picture and um, we have to figure out how do we nurture those relationships, but we, how do we make sure that while we're nurturing those relationships, we're taking into consideration all the different facets. Absolutely. And you know, we talk about human-animal interactions, and as you mentioned, there's lots of different facets to it and different fields to it and different species, taxa. And, you know, we can also find this term in lots of different ways. So you'll hear about human-animal bond, human-animal interactions, human-animal relationship. So there's lots of ways and there's lots of research also around it. And, you know, some of them are kind of distant, right? Our human animal impact in the sense of there's probably not a space on this planet where animals or the environment isn't impacted by the human animal. And so that could be, you know, it's, it's like such a really wide um, approach or umbrella term, if you like, to really look at, um, am I just watching animals in the wild? What sort of you know, relationship is there and how do I behave? And, and, and of course, to the day-to-day -day caring for animals in uh, whether it's PPE or, you know, without it, but uh, really looking at that, uh, those interactions in, in what way. And this is why I love that uh, sense of, that philosophy, every day, every interaction, make it positive uh, for the animals that are in our direct care. And of course, caring for animals is has lots of joys, as I like to call. Um, we, you know, some of them are maybe more difficult, um, not the animals, but our feelings or our experiences. And some of them could be, you know, they they really give us lots of lots of joy, lots of happiness. Um, really, you know give us a, a, our sense of this is the purpose this is why i want to do this job right and um can you talk to us a little bit about human well-being and and of course also your work as a certified uh, compassion fatigue professional yes 
And this is something that we're, you know, we've been aware of, but we're trying to give some terminology around it, I would say, is compassion fatigue in the lab animal community. So compassion fatigue is well-defined in the human caregiver community that the nursing profession kind of started it out and um, was able to, you know, put, put some terms around it and put some care around it. Um, and then we started extrapolating it to the animal shelter community. And then over time, you know, we kind of started thinking about what does compassion fatigue look like in all of these different caregiver type of communities. And so one of our focuses is really how, what does it look like for um, laboratory animal caregivers? So this can be very complicated because as we say, we, we want every interaction to be positive and you do form bonds with the animals. And then the animal is used on an experiment and oftentimes they have to be euthanized for tissue collection at the end of the experiment. This can be very, very tough on people because when you do become bonded, then you know to lose that animal can be very hard on people. And we have to make sure that we're figuring out how to support people through these interactions and how to make sure to minimize the impact that it has on people long-term. So this doesn't mean that we don't want people to feel. We want them to feel, we want them to bond. We want them to make sure that they know that that's a healthy relationship to care for the animals and to have that interaction. But we don't want it to devastate them permanently. So I think that it's really figuring out how do we support people in having their different emotions because, and letting them know it's okay. And, you know, one day you might have an emotion that you is very overwhelming. Another day, it may just feel totally different, but it's about being in touch with that and being okay with it and letting everybody know that it's okay if somebody doesn't want to be present for a certain procedure or if they just need to take a break because they are really bonded with an animal and they, you know, they can't come to terms with what's happening to that animal on that day. It's, those are really important things because the people we want in their everyday care for these animals are the people who care, right? So if, and that's the, that's what I've even said for myself, like if animals have to be used in research, I want to be one of the people taking care of them because we really want to be sure that, that, like I say, everybody in there does understand that. So what we're trying to do is not tell people not to feel, not to care. We're trying to give them tools to deal with the feelings that they're having and to let them know that it's okay and that we want them to be healthy. We want them, you know, it, we kind of have tried to reframe it into being compassion resiliency, how to build resiliency, but letting them know like having a bad day, having, you know, having a hard time with things is really okay, but we want to support them through that. And that's what compassion fatigue is looking at because it can, it's when people are overwhelmed with all of these feelings and emotions and they just, you know, they, it's so hard for them to come to terms with it. Thank you. Could you share with us some examples of like tools or, or approaches and perhaps um, this ties to the dare to care? Um, I'm hoping to, um, to get uh, Preston Van Hooser on the podcast to hear more about this, but can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, and you definitely need to put uh, either Preston or another representative from Dare to Care needs to come do a whole podcast for you because I would never be able to do it justice. But what I would say is there's two factors. Um, not there's many, many factors, but there's two big ones that I think about. And it's, it's you know, it's self-care because, and this is where I look at like any program that supports compassion fatigue has to look at the individual and they have to look at the, uh, at the larger company or institution or program. Um, because, you know, it, it, it's very important that we, we give people the, um, 
the power to know when they need to, to walk away and do self-care. And they have to decide what that looks like for them. Self-care looks very different for very different people. It can be a walk. It can be a book. It can be anything that helps you just to get grounded and be comfortable. The other thing is what can we do as organizations to support these things? And so that's what I think also is incredibly important. Like we talked about, if you have an end of a study, an animal comes to the end of a study and has to be euthanized for tissue collection, how do we make sure people understand what that looks like and why that animal, what, what's the outcome? Because that helps people to deal with their grief, understanding why that research is taking place, what's the ultimate goal of that research, and, and how is it going to help people or animals in the future. So those are some of the big things that we've done is we do what we call endpoint notifications. We let people know when an animal is going to be leaving and we give them some time. And, you know, we often will, there'll be notes sent out like this, this project is ending, this animal, like, and we tell people, go, go give them extra treats, extra enrichment, whatever you feel like you want or need to do to, to deal with that. So those are some of the big things, but I really think conceptually looking at it as, as, you know, taking care of the individual and then taking care of the organization. And both of those need to be considered and, and incorporated into this. Thank you. Yes, like you mentioned already earlier, uh, this is not something that um, is, you know, taken lightly by any of the people working in these organizations, caring for animals, and also not by the individuals, but also organizations that care for the people who care for the animals um, should and hopefully do not take this lightly. And I know your organization doesn't because there's lots of examples that you share here and that you have shared with me in person that really shows you know, that um, the organization cares for the people who care for animals. And, and having both the individual and the organizational aspects are, are so important. And you have done collaborative research on compassion fatigue and satisfaction in U.S. Army laboratory animal medicine personnel. And could, could you talk to us about that research? Yeah, that was fascinating. Um, this is work with um, Teresa Chancellor and um, Peter Rabinowitz, and they did a very, uh, Teresa developed a, a survey looking at compassion fatigue in the U.S. Army laboratory. She's, she's in the Army. And she developed a survey to look at this and how it impacted that community. And it was fascinating to me to um, see that survey and to see the things that were, you know, how, how that um, helped in their communities. One of the things that um, was a really important note out of that survey, and, and I think something to give some credibility to, is that the U.S. Army as an organization provides a lot of resources to people on well-being, how to take care of themselves, and everything else. And that's one of the things that really struck me in that survey was that this particular population of people has a very, very good support system. And that was pretty impressive to me, uh, I have to say, because I really didn't know what it looked like before doing that survey. And then hearing from um, Teresa about some of the, the resources that they offer and how they you know, work to make sure that people's mental health is, is a top, you know, is a high priority item was really impressive to me. And so that was one of the things that I really took out of that study was that there actually is a model and it happens to the US Army that, that organizationally has provided a lot of support around this and maybe, um, maybe worth looking at how are they doing this and uh, what impact it looked to me like it's having an impact in that population of improving their resiliency. 
Yes, thank you. I very much look forward. I haven't actually read the whole paper yet, but uh, certainly for my PhD, I'm looking at different fields and how do organizations support the people that care for animals. So I'm really looking forward to learning more. And this is again, so important to me. Sometimes people ask me, why is the practical animal welfare science platform for everybody? Why is it not just for zoos? And, or, you know, why is it not just for companion animals? And the whole idea is that, you know, we are ultimately in this because we care for animals. We care for people, we care for the planet. We care about so many different things. And there's so much to learn from each other. There's so much to, you know, look at and say, okay, so how are they doing this um, in a different, you know, in, for example, the army or in a research lab or at a zoo? Um, and how are they working with different species and, you know, all these different aspects and how can we together learn and grow and, and make it better? So I really enjoy that. And I'm so glad that we are having this podcast and these conversations and, and also that you and I, together with Professor Lynette Hart, are working on this uh, special issue uh, on the research topic of occupational stress and joy of animal care professionals in zoos, sanctuaries, farms, shelters, and laboratory animal facilities. Because that really, you know, again, brings everyone together and, um, and wanting to do the best we can for everyone. So thank you so much for all that. Yeah, thank you for all you do, Sabrina. My gosh, it's really spectacular. Thank you, Sally. And of course, we always like to hear, you know, a, a story in closing. We're talking for a little bit uh, close to an hour now, and you have so much to share. And I'm sure we could do a whole podcast just on, you know, the human animal bond practitioner or on, you know, your other work. But, you know, in closing of this particular podcast, could you share with us a story of care or connection or, or anything else that really matters to you that you want to share? I, I will. And I, I think I'm going to, um, I think it's a more of a concept than a story. So I think that what's been the most kind of inspiring, one of the more inspiring things to me is to see the um, positive reinforcement training and cooperative training that we're doing with animals in all aspects and almost every discipline where we're working with animals, we're uh, switching the way that we work with them to positive reinforcement, positive interactions, and how do we work with them. We have a really impressive video out on the American Medical, Americans for Medical Progress. Um, they had this come see my world thing. And there's, there's this amazing video of um, one of our animals that is used in a neuroscience project. And so using a neuro neuroscience project, they transfer to these chairs to go play the, the video games in their booths. And the way we used to transfer them was more of a forceful moving them. And now we don't do that. We do what we call voluntary, where the animals, you know, the animal walks down from its cage, it walks into the chair. And there's a, a really amazing one where it actually not only walks in, but then it closes the door behind it. And then it goes to into the booth to play its video games. It's a quite impressive. So I think these this is where we can see that the positive interactions are making a difference. The other one I want to bring up is, is not with research animals, but it, it came out last week. And I think this is one of the, like just, just seeing it inspired me. Um, the, the one where they have trained cows at um, a dairy farm, I believe, to um, kind of basically use a litter box where they're trained to go to a certain spot to urinate and defecate. And they're doing this primarily because of the environmental problems that they're seeing with the uh, from the cows. And 
I think that that to me, like now they're, if they train the animals to go to a certain place to urinate, defecate, and then they can deal with the um, waste in a different way so that they can decrease the impact on the environment. I mean, that to me is like, this is the future. We're, we're going to figure this out and uh, it's taking us time and everybody needs to be in this together. But I think as we learn going forward about how we can have these positive collaborative interactions working with animals, it's going to lead to improvements for all of us. Um, so that's something that I just want to share. I, I have a lot of excitement about those projects. Yes, I can definitely hear that. It's vibrating through, through the line. So thank you so much for that positive story. Starting with cats, all about cats, and then dogs were able to win over your heart. I do remember seeing a picture with you and, and a dog. So, and then of course, you know, really talking about the importance of animal care staff, how animal care always continues, you know, the importance of course, of really looking, and that's how you got into this field, right? asking that question, who's caring for the animals and how are we doing that? And are we doing that to the best of our abilities? You know, really taking that through, through that, you know, beautiful philosophy every day, every interaction, whether it's a, whether it's a mouse, you know, a rat, a monkey, a cat, a dog, or a cow, every interaction make it positive. So thank you so much, Sally, for coming onto this podcast. And I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Thank you. So that was the end of another wonderful podcast. And we all strive for the animals in our care to flourish. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to feel at your best and achieve excellence in animal care and well-being. And the Practical Animal Welfare Science platform is the first online platform combining human, animal, and planetary well-being, where you can continue learning and sharing, as well as access many types of resources like live and recorded webinars, of course, information on self and organizational care strategies, as well as the Earth Charter and the Sustainable Development Goals. Like you, we are committed to well-being, care and respect for animals, peoples, and the greater community of life, and of course, this beautiful planet that we share. If you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today and join our community. Mm -hmm.